All right, so we're going out to rural Pennsylvania this week to meet with Matt Baracalo, who's an orthopedic surgeon, does joint replacement in sports medicine. He's literally not even three years into practice, and I'm exhausted literally just having to listen to his story. The dude operates four days a week. He's in the office one day. He's got 10 physician extenders. Uh, he is just cranking, and he's got a huge presence on social media. And we really pushed him on that. I wanted to sort of get there because I know we have a lot of younger orthopedic listeners out there, people that are thinking about starting practice, but even like medical device or pharma, like how do you use social media to get your message out? So we talk a lot about that. And, and really one of the things that I'm really most respectful about the way he describes is really the entire experience for the patient. He's not focused on just the knee or just the hip. Uh, his entire process is to help patients to stop smoking, to help lose weight, to maintain, you know, and improve their overall medical condition. And they focus on that entire process for the patient. So I enjoyed that part of the conversation as well. So yeah, it's just a really cool story about a young guy who is just crushing it out in rural Pennsylvania. I know you're going to like it. Hashtag follow the fro. This episode of the Ortho Show podcast is brought to you by ModMed. Envisioning a world where the orthopedic software we build increases practice success and improves patient outcomes. ModMed offers an intelligent ortho-specific cloud platform of healthcare IT solutions that help surgeons and staff save time, drive efficiency, and elevate patient experiences. To learn more and see a demo of the number one EHR system, EMMA, as well as practice management, revenue cycle management, analytics, patient engagement tools, and more, visit modmed.com slash orthopod. That's modmed.com slash orthopod. ModMed, it's about time. For medical media, this is The Ortho Show. Hello world, Dr. Scott Sigmund, your favorite opioid sparing orthopedic surgeon here for another episode of The Ortho Show podcast, where we bring you the best of the best in the orthopedic space. Today is no exception. We are bringing Dr. Matt Vericalo, who is an orthopedic surgeon, who specializes in robotic joint replacement and sports medicine at the Penn Highlands Healthcare Group in uh, in Du Bois, Pennsylvania. Matt, it is a pleasure to have you on, brother. How are you? Yeah, likewise. So I've been following your show for quite some time. I know we've tried to connect before, so it's glad to I'm glad to finally get this going here. Yeah, man, sure. thrilled, thrilled to have you on. You know, it's what's really cool for our listeners, right? We we've done everything. You know, we we talked to iconic leaders in Japan. We, we talked to amazing orthopedic surgeons from around the world and, and some are at the end of their careers and some are in the middle of their career. And so what, what I really like about this story for you in particular is that you're only, you know, about three years into practice. And I really want to share the successes that you've had uh, so that our young listeners in particular who are building practice can, can sort of go from there. Yeah. So it's really interesting because this is, so Dubois is actually where I grew up. My family's from here. And so I never was really dead set on coming back here. It just sort of evolved. And I'm in practice with my brother right now. He's a non-op primary care sports medicine doctor. So, you know, the interesting thing is, is this is essentially by definition, a rural area. So a lot of people would think, you know, why would you come here to build a practice? But I saw a lot of potential because it pulls from a huge radius. I mean, we're about a hundred miles outside of Pittsburgh. We're also far enough from state college, but we have this this huge kind of void in this area that for the longest time, you know, while I was in residency and training, uh, the 
the care, and it's not a, a knock on anybody, but the care was a little, like the patients in the community were a little concerned about that. So I think, you know, when I came back and partnered up with my brother, and there are a couple other partners in our practice, but uh, really just the goal was, especially as I was you know, really early on starting out, was to put the patient at the center. And I know it sounds kind of cheesy, but if the patient's the focus and you demonstrate to them that, that you're a primary, that they're a primary concern of yours, and, you know, that, that really does translate. And, you know, I know we're going to touch on the social media stuff. That's kind of how I used that tool to rebrand our department. Because again, working with that reputation, I felt like early on, I was selling it, selling it, selling it every single time. And it got exhausting. I would sit there and, and uh, have the same exact spiel every single time. So one day I kind of sat down and I was like, you know, how can I get this? So I don't have to say the same thing every single time. And so I really tapped into patients love to talk to other patients. They love to teach one another. They love to talk about their experience. So as a new surgeon, you can really capitalize on that. And if you, you followed my social media post, you see, I kind of have this format where I interview the patient. I talk about how they're doing and how their recovery has been. And patients love to see that because they're very anxious and, and, um, rightfully so, I think, for, to undergo orthopedic surgery. Uh, but if they hear it from another patient, they talk and you talk to them very candidly about what their experience was like, what they went through, how much pain was there, how are they doing now? Patients really eat that up and they're hungry for learning as much as they can about that process. And it almost puts their mind at ease. So you're, you're really their, their, uh, your biggest marketing tool. Yeah. And so, so that's not the playbook that that's given out. Okay. So let, let's talk about traditional medicine. You go to medical school, you go to your fellowship, you figure out where you're going to get a job, you hang up your shingle, you typically join a large group, and then you sort of wait for the scraps to sort of work their way down. And you take a lot of extra call from people. And then you hope that you build up a practice and one day you get busy. And, and it was all very, it was all very passive. It was a passive process. You couldn't advertise. You didn't want to talk about yourself. It was basically, that was a no, no in medicine, but but that's not really the real world in which we live anymore, right? The real world yeah. is a smartphone in your hand, patients communicating to one another, sharing their stories. And it seems to me like you've really sort of capitalized on that. And so, you know, we'll, we'll talk a little bit you know, more about that as we get going. But so what's it like practicing with your brother? Is that, uh, is that okay? <laughs> well, <laughs> if you'd asked me before I started, I would have been like, that's, that's never going to work. Um, we always had this, as you would expect, he's a year and a half older than me. And uh, we clashed and fought. I think, uh, you know, we gave each other black eyes, definitely when we were growing up. Yeah, I had a lot of that going in my house too, for sure. Yeah, yeah. so, um, but it's interesting. And I think that we're very similar in many ways. And I respect him a lot. And, you know, one of the first things he told me was, you know, just because you're coming back, that doesn't mean I'm going to refer to you. <laughs> you got to earn the and respect. He goes, if you're... <laughs> He literally, this was his quote. He said, if you're a hack, I'm not going to be sending patients because I have <laughs> my reputations on the line. So I said, you know what, let's just see how it goes. So again, getting back to how much I respect what he does, because he is not primary care sports med, but he takes it to the next level. He does Tangent, he does Iovera, he does all these different procedures. And really he, he sees a ton of patients and by the time he sends them to me, the patient is, is beyond ready for surgery. So I think there's something to be said for that model. 
patients feel comfortable knowing that we're brothers and we get along, obviously, but also, you know, he's been keeping them going for five, 10 years. And honestly, sometimes I see them, some of the hip replacements he sends me, those patients, I have no idea how they're still walking. And in some ways, from the surgeon's side, uh, when you have a non-operative partner who's good at what he or she does, it prolongs that. So sometimes it makes the surgery harder. I think, yeah, you know, that, yeah. that's interesting. I mean, that's, we had this, this conversation the other day in my group in my clinical governance board meeting where we're like, you know, what's our next step? You know, who would you want to bring in? And one of the things that I brought up was a primary care doctor that does sports medicine, that does regenerative medicine. Yes. You know, they focus on it. They learn how to do ultrasound. They know how to do BMAC, PRP, lipogems, whatever it is that they're doing. But that can provide, you know, a real, a, a nice resource for patients to be able to have non-operative management. It also generates revenue for a practice as well, for someone that's busy and good. Uh, and then it's a, a synergistic, as you described, eventually the patients are going to want to have surgery. It stays within the practice. So yeah. it's, a, it's a really interesting model. I mean, I don't necessarily know that I'm going to hire my brother to come and do it with me, but I do think that's probably a pretty good option. Yeah. I, I mean, I think honestly, it's a, uh, Patients love to hear about what other options there are besides surgery too. I mean, some of them are, they're really ready for surgery and, and rightfully so, but, but the fact that I can, you know, we kind of bounce ideas off, off each other and he's slick with the ultrasound. So, um, and the other thing too is, is basically since we've been in practice in the last couple of years, we've expanded and hired 10 mid-levels. So it's a, uh, it's a pretty. That's a, uh, that's tough. a, that's a busy mid-level practice, man. That's a lot yes. going on. That's yeah. ge generating a lot of patients. So, and are they, they independent in their clinic or are they, are you there with them when they're working? How's it work? So it's interesting that you bring that up because I, so I'm employed. I don't know how long I'm going to be employed, but, but right now I let them have that independence because I feel like that generates more revenue for the practice. It makes my clinic. So I operate four days a week and I have clinic on Wednesday and it's, me and an LPN. Now I'm eventually probably going to change that model, but it's, I let them operate independently. And then of course they help me in the OR, but we sort of have them expanded out and, and, you know, we train them, increase their autonomy. And I mean, some of my clinic, most of my clinics now I'll literally book 30 or 40 surgeries every week. And that's like routine. And I think it's because we have such a broad referral basis now. So, so you're, so let's get this, I want to make sure I understand this. So four days a week, you're operating, you're in the office one day a week. You've got to be meeting your patients on that one day a week, right? People yes. want to meet their surgeon before they're going yes. to go in for surgery, but uh, the follow-ups are pretty much being done by the, by the extenders. Yes. Yeah. Unless there's something complex or the patient requests it, you know, it's, that's the thing is, is we spend a lot of time communicating with the, I think if you're upfront and you say that, listen, you're going to see my PA at the two week visit, the six week visit, then I'll see you later on. And, uh, you know, most of the time they're fine with that. Um, yeah. And, and so the other thing too, is I, knowing that I'm only in clinic one day a week, the things that I've modified is I actually start my clinic at 6am and uh, that's to accommodate the workers and accommodate people with their schedule. It started, there was a maintenance guy who worked at the hospital. He told me, listen, I can't get in to see you during the hours of seven to five. So I opened up 6am specifically for him. And then some days I'll literally go until six or seven at night. So I, I try to cram it all in there and, you know, give every patient the time they deserve for sure.
<laughs> you know, it's interesting. That's like the exact opposite of Daniel Paul. Do you follow Daniel on LinkedIn? We no. just so he's a repeat surgeon uh, in uh, in Colorado, and he's yeah. in a, a a patient pay model concierge orthopedics. He doesn't uh, take any insurance of any kind. He, he's he's not even signed up with Medicare. And, and he actually does house calls. And, and so he'll see, he'll see five patients in a day. So it's like, that's a busy day for him to see five patients. So we're presenting to our listeners really almost the exact opposite of, of what's, what's happening, but you know, it's, a, we're a high volume world at this point right now in yeah. order to accommodate and, and treat the patients. I mean, I want to, I want to go back to the story a little bit about, about coming home. Cause I think we brushed over that, but you know, I think that, so dad is, was a doctor as well. Is that correct? Family medicine doctor. He had so, about two to three thousand patients. Yeah. So it's really so and again in rural Pennsylvania, as a family family doctor, you know everybody and everything, right? There, yeah. he's the he's the guy. Yeah. Uh, so was it medicine for you and your brother early on? Was that was that the plan? I think for my brother, yeah. For me, it was I I sort of had that idea in the back of my mind, but I was always, you know, as a DJ ever since I was 13 years old, I started a bunch of companies. I was always kind of like I don't know if this is the thing for me. And I clashed a little bit with my dad. He's um, just a little bit more on his story um, as a family doctor, well-respected in the community, two to 3000 patients, but he was killed on his bike in 2010. He was, he always would go out for rides uh, before his clinic. And uh, yeah, he was tragically killed from that. So, uh, so that was something that I think played into the storyline a little bit about coming back home to that area because so many people loved him and, and for good reason, he was great at what he did and he cared about the patients beyond measure. And so really it kind of, it just fed into that storyline that, that I, I would come back and my brother would come back and just pick up kind of where he left off really. And it sounds like, you know, as you started the story off, I mean, this is a community in need. It, it sounded, yes. sounds like you're far enough away from the major metropolitan centers to go a hundred miles to Pittsburgh is not necessarily attractive. And so, you know, for our younger listeners, and you are, I should I say our younger listeners, but our younger orthopedic surgeons or residents or fellows that are out there that are at this point considering, where am I going to go? What am I going to do? Right. You can certainly do academics. You can go hospital employed. You can be private practice. But the question becomes, you know, you know, where do you want to go? And, and I think for, for someone like yourself, that's been in practice for, for less than three years, you, you, you really have found a very busy practice and a successful practice super early in in what most people would experience. Yeah. So I don't know how many surgeons or physicians go back to their hometown. I don't, I don't know those numbers obviously, but, uh, but you know, I, so I trained in Philly and I love being in the big city. So this is a little bit of, you know, it's, it's obviously an adjustment, but I know this area. I think the other challenging part here too is that these rural areas and these community hospitals and Penn Highlands is growing, but it's, it's still, you know, on some levels, it's, it's basically a community hospital. They have to foster people that are from that area to come back because that's the only way you're going to have that investment there. If you don't cultivate that side of it, it becomes a revolving door for just travelers coming in and out, traveler, traveler, and patients don't like that. And that's, that's a huge blow, I think, for, and it really hinders the potential that can be achieved if you have too many. So the other thing that we've done is we just started a primary care sports fellowship. And so we have our first fellow starting this year. But the goal with that, too, is to see if we can get more primary care sports docs 
who are from the area do the fellowship here, get invested in the area and stay here. So that, that's kind of, it, it's an interesting twist. And my, what I would say in terms of advice for, for uh, newer surgeons or people, you know, wondering where, where should they go to practice? It's don't write either your hometown off or don't write, don't, don't write it off that you have to be at a city, you have to join a big practice. Yeah, there, there are certain perks with that, but it, everything's a double-edged sword. There's always positives and negatives to it. Um, I'm essentially my own boss. I don't have to take any call at all. And really my focus is just my patients and growing this practice. So it really is unique, but I, I absolutely love it. All right. So, so let's go back to social media. So everybody knows one of my dear friends is Matthew Ray Scott. We call him the beard. Uh, he provides really some powerful advice for medical device reps, but surgeons as well, who are looking to really develop themselves as the specialist of the specialty. But one of the things that he talks about, which I, I think is, is really interesting, and that is, you know, as a surgeon, as a doctor, how are you going to attract the ideal patient for what you're looking for? And I'd like you to walk us through, because I know that you're, you're deep into social media, you have something like 600,000 followers on Instagram, yeah. but you're on LinkedIn as well and Facebook. So what are you doing for advice for our listeners? What, what are you in practical doing to be able to identify and make a message message out on social media to identify the patients that you want to have come to your door. I have a consistent theme and I want patients, the message that, that I try to convey is if you're mentally ready for the surgery, if you're mentally ready, you've talked with your physician, your surgeon about, about the surgical process and the recovery process, you're mentally ready and invested to do the rehab, do the physical therapy. And let me, let me go with this example here. So we all know the patient who's out there with a BMI of 55, poorly controlled diabetic smoker. All right. One of the themes I use in my videos is patients that have stopped chewing or stopped smoking. I interview them and I say, what is, what's the process like for you to stop smoking or stop chewing? So the patients sit there and they talk in, in their own words, really about how that process is. So my future patients who are smokers, listen to Joe Schmo, who's been chewing since he was six and a half years old. If you're like Dubois, there are a lot of patients who've been chewing and smoking since they're around 10 years old. So if those future patients see that, they're like, oh, he did it, I can do it. And I thought before that I knew there were a decent amount of smokers in this area. I thought if I'm if I am making these patients stop smoking before I'll do a joint replacement, there's no way I'm going to get busy. I really thought that before I came back. And what I've actually found is that probably 90 to 95% are like, oh yeah, I can do that. And so, 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 point, so, yeah. so really, so interesting. So point number one would be rather than lecturing to the patients and saying, yes. you know, Mrs. Jones, you should stop smoking or, or, or I'm not going to do your knee replacement until you stop smoking. What, what you do is you're turning it around and you're, you're getting you know, testimonials from patients yeah. who've been through the experience of, of listening to you and following your recommendation and then allowing them in their own words to then help to describe and perhaps help other patients go through the same process. Really yeah, good. 100%. And the, like other thing too, the other thing too I've added in is in my clinic, in the waiting room, I have this total joint boot camp where I talk about risk factors and I talk about why diabetes is important, why you should be controlling your, your blood sugar, why you need to stop smoking, why you need to lose weight. 
I'll tell you, I have all these patients who come in and they may have all these risk factors, but when we're talking in the office, they go, okay, I've lost 15 pounds. I'm down to two cigarettes a day. And I'm talking with my primary doctor about getting my diabetes under control. So you, you lead with that up front and you empower the patient. That's what you need to do. Because I, I see all these patients who come from other surgeons and they go, so-and-so told me I was too fat and I had to lose 75 pounds. And I know you won't do my joint replacement. I just had a lady the other day who has already lost 85 pounds just on her own, just dieting. And she had been to three to four different orthopedic surgeons who all were like, you're too fat. So I flipped the narrative and I told her, I said, listen, you're in the prehab phase. You're entering into this new phase of your life. She's horrible hippo A. And I'm like, you're entering into this new phase where you're going to be healthier. You're going to get your weight under control. You're going to be more active. So empowering the patient. So they're like, yeah, I'm going to do that. That's been a tremendous, I mean, we all know that there's that group of patients where you always thought like patients aren't motivated, they're entitled. There's, there's some degree of that, but I think I've tapped into, and I found that the majority of patients are actually motivated if you word it the right way. And if you empower them and explain to them why it's important to do that. Okay. So we're, we're having the patient's message to other patients. Yeah. We're, we're going to empower the patients by providing them tools. We're not just going to tell them what to do, but we're going to hopefully you know, educate them so that they're going to be involved. They're going to be mentally prepared for their intervention. But all right. So I'm going to call you out on this map because I know how busy I am and all the stuff that I'm doing. And you're only in the clinic one day a week. Yeah. So, so these people need to manage all this stuff and then they have to come back and you monitor them through the process. So yes. where do they fall in? How does, are the extenders seeing them as they're, as they're transitioning and becoming yeah. losing weight and stopping yes. smoking? Okay. Yeah. So what we do is, is basically if a patient is close, like if their BMI is 40 or 41, um, a lot of times what we do is we check in. Cause I, so the prehab phase for a lot of my patients, I'm booked into like October, almost November for surgery right now. So patients have a several month wait. So the patients where their BMI is 45 to 50, I say, okay, you've lost 20 to 25 pounds. We're checking in on you in the next six to eight weeks, and we're going to weigh you again. And so I'll say, do you want me to send you to a nutrition uh, consult? So a lot of times I'll do that if the patient wants to, but we're checking in on that. So I have LPNs that are working on it. I just hired a nurse practitioner who's going to start uh, doing more in terms of the weight loss. So it's utilizing your extenders. But I think patients do like hearing that from the surgeon. So if you say that, and you know, I could probably, there are probably going to be people who argue with me and say, I don't have time to say all that. Well, you can teach your extender to say it, but you have to make sure that that extender is good at talking with patients or else you're going you're gonna to polarize and, and lose some patients. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a really fascinating point, right? I mean, you know, patient-reported outcomes for total hip replacements are, are really, you know, excellent as far as unicompartmental knee replacement. But when you get to knee replacements, and we could talk a little bit about this, I mean, patient-reported outcomes are not great. I mean, you know, as many as 20% of people are unhappy after a knee replacement. And yeah. you brought up some important points. And Eric Smith, who we just had on recently, who's the chief of arthroplasty at the Baptist, really talks about it as well, is that the mental preparedness to understand, to be able to go through this. Those are the patients that you can look at them, you know, they're going to do well because they're motivated yeah. and they have no option to get better. Yeah. But then you're also, you know, involved in the prehab phase, which is, 
you know, really important. And I think that gets lost. A lot of orthopedic surgeons are like, I'm the carpenter. I'm going to take care of your knee replacement. You're close enough. You meet the criteria. We're going to do this, but they don't necessarily help the other patients. And I think if you are really a, a fully trained arthroplasty surgeon, and that's really where your focus is, being able to help these patients to improve their outcomes, I think really yeah. makes a difference. And you have to emphasize to them that physical therapy is going to be painful, especially for total knees. I always explain the same spiel for them with a total or a partial knee replacement. I talk to them about the importance of getting that motion back. And you have to do that. And you have to, in some degree, push through the pain. And if you empower, again, that word empower, you empower them with that knowledge up front. They know. And so the sooner they get the, um, the sooner you get your motion back, the sooner you get your full motion, full strength, the sooner you're back to everything. And you kind of have to highlight that importance of once you're outside of three, four months, if your knee's stiff, it's, it's not going to be, you're not going to like your knee ever, really. Have you, have you thought about giving up on, on formal physical therapy or at least having it more virtual where the therapist can monitor the patients without them necessarily going in for therapy? Or are you all hands-on physical therapy through the process? So I still like the all hands-on model, although I am going to start incorporating uh, tools like motion sense where you, you virtually are monitoring patients so you can track their motion. I think that that's extremely important. You need to identify those outliers. I have a lot of patients two weeks out or six weeks out. They never come back into my clinic because they're, they're doing so well in terms of their knee. The other point that I'll highlight too, being a sports medicine and an arthroplasty surgeon is in some ways with the physical therapy, you almost approach a total knee like you would approach rehabbing an ACL with the same aggressiveness, hip, core, uh, quad, hamstring uh, balance and improving the strengthening and, and optimizing that. And if you're aggressive on that end in the arthroplasty setting, as much as you are in sports medicine, I basically approach their rehab the exact same way. And if you're aggressive like that, <laughs> I think patients, at least in my practice, they bought into it. So, so how many joint replacements are you doing a year? What are you going to do this year? Have you, have you counted so far? So I do about, well, what's the math? I do like 10 to 12 a week. Okay. So, so, so that's, that's pretty impressive. You know, you know, I, you know, I look at my arthroplasty partner, it probably took him, I don't know, upwards of almost, you know, five, six, maybe even 10 years to really get to the point of, you know, critical mass. But I think that may also be, you know, I think your your the style in which you're developing your practice is unique, but I think your practice setting is also unique too. That yes. you were able to capture these people, make them feel comfortable. Yes, they can have surgery at home instead of having to travel for surgery, and they're still going to get you know outstanding care. The other thing too is so with the uh, four OR days, I have two rooms each day, so I purposely have Monday, Tuesday, sometimes Thursday where I'm doing joint replacements, but I've sort of built it so. Monday, Tuesday, Monday, I might do knees. Tuesday, I might do hips. Thursday, I'll do sports, shoulder, cups, instability. And then Friday, I'll do like ACLs. So that's the other thing. The other piece of advice I would say out there, if you're, uh, you know, to new surgeons starting out, building up that OR time, but thinking about how you can, like, number one, do you want to specialize and just do shoulders or just do hips, just do knees? With my practice, I, I kind of like it all, but I want to be high volume in all of these different areas. So I have that chance to really put on my knee hat on Monday, hip hat on Tuesday, and then sports the rest of the week. So 
it's uh that's that's it's i mean i can tell you that's it's uh it's definitely a challenge i've one thing i've learned in, in my you know 30 years of practice at this point now is that uh i want to be you know an expert at fewer things so that so that you know uh, yeah i'm doing decent shoulders left and right don't get me wrong some of the stuff i do is complicated but if i'm doing it i want to feel like i could do it as well as anybody so but getting the reps is so so important, right? You got to get the yeah. reps to, to be able to to become a master master at what you do. And uh, so, look, we're 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 coming to the end here, Matt. I really appreciate your time. It's very refreshing to hear, you know, how the the new breed is uh, is becoming successful and and really the tools in which you're using. So so provide the the younger orthopedic surgeons, let's say the residents or fellows that are out there right now. Uh, some let's let's keep it straight to the social media. What what advice would you provide them as they're developing a social media presence and messaging uh, as to how they can help develop their practice? So really, it's all about consistency. And if you want, um, don't be afraid to kind of step out and do something that's not as generic. I mean, you know the type of posts I'm talking about where it's just cookie cutter. So think about sit down and brainstorm with how, you know, what message do you want to convey? Uh, you know, how do you want to utilize that? So for me, it was, you know, I do the joint replacement side. I have workout Wednesday. So I'm featuring an athlete on Friday. I have different features. I know my social media is kind of, I haven't been posting as much, but it, it, the other thing to that point is, uh, you know, do you want to do it yourself or are you going to hire a company? Do you want to have control of that narrative? Or are you going to hand that over to somebody else. And that's a question that honestly, I grapple with myself because I feel like sometimes, especially in the last year when my practice has really exploded, um, I want to keep up the social media presence. So I think, you know, especially as you start out, just think of the theme that you want to use and, and think about consistency. How often do you want to post? I want to post one time a week. I want to post multiple times per week because I, I can't tell you how many times I get text messages from people. They expect me to post five to six times a week. And they're like, where have your posts been? I, like my phone gets blown up all the time. Like, where well, have they been? Been No, dude, at the pace that you're going with all the cases that you're doing, it, yes. it's, it's just not physically possible. There's not enough yeah. time in the day. I mean, yeah. I do, I, I'm a big believer in, you know, having your own message. And as soon as you yeah. farm it out to someone else, it's, it's not, it's not authentic as much yeah. as it is. It's not, it's not where you, who you are, where you come from and people can sense that. So if you really want to be passionate, you know, for example, like Corey Callendine or, yes. or Matt Barber, I mean, these guys are, you know, they just figure out a way in their crazy lives to get it all done. But I do think that, you know, social media when handled correctly and, and uh, done with respect and making sure you're following, you know, HIPAA regulations, I think can be a real attraction to your practice. One of the things I'm going to throw out, uh, Vin Doss and myself, Corey Callendine and Matt Barber are going to get together for a social media webinar that's going to be on Doc Social. So that's coming out in about a month or so. So nice. for all of our listeners that are out there that want to listen to some of the gurus and, and their thoughts and beliefs, that'll be a great spot for you. But, you know, Matt, I really respect, I respect what you're doing here. What I really, the message, you know, part of your message that really resonates well for me is that you know you're looking holistically at the entire patient. You're not looking at a knee. You're not looking at a hip. You're going to help these patients through all of their medical conditions and and help to really you know prepare them for their surgery and per- perhaps even improve on their outcomes because of all the things that you're doing. And I really admire that for sure. Thank you. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, it's my pleasure. Now, unfortunately, everybody can't see your hair here. This was a real, this was a close one. I got to tell you, the fro is going kind of crazy here. I haven't been cutting in a while, but Matt's sleeking some side stuff going on there. He's got a whole bunch of stuff going on in the back. Sides on the right. He's got nothing on the left. And he's got a whole party going on in the back, man. I love it. You know, it's all about hair for us here on the, on the air. Yeah. Follow the flow meets follow the fro. Oh, that one's already stolen, Sharif Bache, but it's all good. I love it. Oh man, that was already taken. Yeah, it's already taken. We'll still give it to you too. We'll we'll split up the territory for sure. But no, man, it's really been a pleasure having you on. This is what we do here at the Ortho Show. We provide you unique stories of really, you know, interesting people from all over the world and the different practices and, and how they work. So this is Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro, host of the Ortho Show. Till next time.